Hey there, I'm Mr. Black. And I'm Mr. Green. And we're a couple of guys who met in a comic book store. Together we host the Pint O' Comics podcast, where we invite listeners to join us to talk about movies, TV, comics, music, or just whatever. Starting very soon, we'll be joining up with the fine folks at Forgotten Entertainment for a special limited series called On the QT, where we talk Tarantino. Every week for 10 weeks, a guest will join us to chat about every Quentin Tarantino movie from Reservoir Dogs to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So join us starting in May 2021. On the QT is available wherever you download your podcasts and is part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Ooh, that's a bingo. And welcome to the Nomcast, the Netflix original movie podcast. I am your host, Andrew Morgan. You can follow the show at NomcastPod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can check us out on the web at NomcastPod.com. All right. On today's show, we are discussing two things that never go out of style. Noir crime thrillers and hot takes on the Oscars. Later on in the show, we'll break down the latest Netflix crime noir, Windfall, starring Jason Siegel, Lily Collins, and current Oscar nominee, Jesse Plemons. But right now, we'll dive in on our final thoughts on award season before the Oscars next week, and we'll do all this with return guest and co-host of the Untitled Cinema Gals podcast, Morgan Roberts. Morgan, welcome back to the show. Always great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited um, and a little bit scared to talk about our first topic. I was about to say, I didn't fully believe you. (laughs) It was the most tepid enthusiasm I've heard in a long time. Like, yeah, I'm I'm here. (laughs) I mean, I'm excited to be here. I have trepidations about Oscar season and the fact that it is still, still here. Yeah. But we will also talk about a really fun film so i'll i'll talk about the oscars before we get to that absolutely and it was a very busy weekend as we were kind of talking off air uh film twitter kind of exploded (laughs) with just a little yeah just a little with uh saturday was the pga the producers guild awards and then yesterday because we're doing this on a monday night um was the wgas and the ascs the writers guild and the I don't even know the full acronym for ASC, but it's a Cinematographers Guild, everybody. Uh, so we'll talk about that maybe a little bit. But honestly, PGA and WGA gave enough people of a shakeup in this because after we talked about uh, the Critics' Choice and BAFTAs last week where, you know, there's been kind of a sea change since SAG that CODA's getting a lot of, you know, uh, steam. But, you know, and Critics' Choice really shook that up because that was basically... Oh, of course, the power of the dog, like, was the critical darling all year. Of course, they're going to have a massive success on Critics' Choice, and uh, it did not. Um, lost to Coda in, in a lot of major ways. And then now, the Producers Guild, which is one of the largest bodies, or is the largest body, one of the two, between that and SAG, mm-hmm. I know it's the largest, their award went to Coda. and And that kind of now has shifted the tide where uh, last I knew the betting odds were basically almost neck and neck between Coda and Power of the Dog, where a lot of people are kind of grabbing on to the, there's no way Coda only has three nominations. There's no way that they could win Best Picture. 
And to those people, I say, welcome to Netflix. Because I've been saying all season long, it's a Netflix film. It's a bummer. We're coming out of this horrific pandemic period. And no one is going to go for the Netflix bummer when they can vote for these crowd pleasers like Coda, Belfast, or King Richard. So, and slowly but surely... I have been sort of right. So I, yeah. I will I will, you know, pat myself in the saddest of ways on the back and will ask you kind of your take on this. Yes, Power of the Dog is the leading nominee in terms of the Oscars, and everybody kind of saw it as, well, it's gotta win. Like what's its competition? And people would throw up Belfast and all these other ones. And nobody really said Coda because of those three nominations, but man. Have things changed? And it almost feels like The Father from last year in some ways, where somehow a movie that's over a year old now, since its release in Sundance yeah. last year, feels like a late breaker. How the hell is this happening, Morgan? What do you think is going to happen if you had to pick? I mean, I don't predict because, well, especially right now, last year we kind of saw for the first time in a million years, categories that are normally seen as locks, not having any continuity whatsoever in any of the precursors. True. I mean, best actor was kind of here and there. Best actress is that category probably caused a few um, blood pressure spikes. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and I, I really like, award seasons that are spreading the wealth yeah, and looking at taking alternatives as maybe we should be taking these films seriously, right? that we don't need to look at sad epics as the only type of crowning achievement in cinema. Sure. Um, I think my favorite part of this is the fact that the, what we would consider the two front runners in The Power of the Dog and Coda mm -hmm. are two films directed by women. Yeah. They're directed and written by women. When does that happen? I know. Yeah. And <laughs> it'd be nice if they, if, if we knew that there was not going to be two directors, up, uh, female directors, up for best director right. of the year because, you know, men. But last like, year was a last year was a fluke. Yeah. I last mean. year was a fluke. It was a pandemic year, whatever. It's sad that we're, I'm talking in that kind of tone, but unfortunately, that has been the reality for a very long time. It'd be interesting and very honestly refreshing if it did occur that way. But yeah, here we are. <laughs> yeah. And and I I just like the fact that it is films uh, made by women that are tackling either, you know, with the power of the dog, it's trying to understand toxic masculinity and the pervasiveness of that. Yeah. And I love the fact that that's coming from a female gaze instead of a man trying to deconstruct toxic masculinity with his own patriarchal representative in his brain. Sure. Versus we have Coda, which is, uh, I will say, it's quite annoying to hear it equated to like Hallmark and Disney Channel movies yeah. because I don't think yeah. that there are also films from Hallmark and Disney Channel that are fun and great for their own purposes yeah we shouldn't but... be punching down that's a common thing that mm -hmm. uh, i've learned that lesson many times in terms of uh 
obviously on a Netflix platform, I, I will mm-hmm. occasionally drop those things. But when I do stand up comedy, that's a big thing I try to recognize in myself of like, is this joke punching down or punching up? Um, you know, because you go after don't go after people who are, you know, maybe in a, a in a position not to defend themselves or, or or that don't deserve to be picked on or any of those things. I try to be as conscious of that as I can. I'm not a perfect human being. Some of you will probably like, hey, I found this clip from your episode like four weeks ago and you said something about a Lifetime movie. I'm like, okay, fine. But um, yeah, some of those are quite good and they're just, it's all, it's all different. It doesn't mean lesser mm-hmm. than, better than all that. I understand what you're saying though. Yeah. And, um, but you know, like we don't typically see movies about young women having to find their way as a film that's ever taken seriously as for like best picture. Sure. Because even though Bradley Cooper was like a ladybird stan and even voted for it for best picture, there was no way in hell that that film was going to be in the running for, you know, the top films of the year um, at the Oscars. So I, I just find it a little bit refreshing that the two stories that are going against each other are not typical stories that we always see. For sure. And, you know, I think that we could, like, it could be worse. Like, Don't Look Up could be sweeping everything. (laughs) And I would be in a very, very, I know, sorry, Netflix, but I would be in a dark place (laughs) if it was sweeping everything. So, um yeah, I think that people need to like calm down just a little bit. I will be happy if the power of the dog wins. I will be happy if Coda wins. Learn to accept happiness. <laughs> sure. Go for a walk. <laughs> Talk to friends. Yeah. Like do something other than sitting there going like if power of the dog doesn't win, it'll be like crash winning all over again. No, it won't no, because no. Coda is not crash. No. Don't kid it's not crash. It's not the green book. Right. Green books I've seen more than crash, but yes. Uh Uh-huh. Like, don't, don't, don't be that person. Like, maybe it's not the strongest best picture. Okay. But it resonated with an academy who votes on this stuff. Sure. Go make a movie then and get yourself into the academy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and but I will say, even for all the superlatives that I will say about coda as a movie it, it was literally my number six out of all the movies <laughs> i saw this year it's a very good movie you know and and power of the dog was behind that i believe so if if anything you know i i do like coda slightly better than power of the dog i don't care i don't have a vote i just you know put these things out there but the one thing that is very interesting to me coda like i said only has three nominations mm-hmm. no director no film editing, no, you know, some of these things where it's like, oh, well, at least they got this, you know? Uh, So those are baffling to me that if they win, that would be the first time since like the thirties. I think if they won, like, you know, only one or two, uh, including best picture, that's wild. Mm -hmm. Um, That really never happens. And also um, nobody will really say it, but, this is a remake, and from what I understand, yeah. it's pretty close to the original, and no one gave a shit about this movie. Now, again, international film, 
we're Americans, we're snobs, we're whatever. But the, the tide is slowly changing even with that now where obviously, you know, Parasite winning was a, was a big landmark thing. And I see a lot more people talking about, you know, especially in film Twitter about drive my car, the worst person in the world, more than like a lot of some of these other nominees. Mm -hmm. So the world is slowly opening up in terms of our tastes, at least. And so it's, it's amazing. I, I think, I think of the departed I, as far as like a remake that won best picture, but it's a very, very select group. Uh, if that happens, because a lot of times people are like, nah, we'll, we'll award everything else, but best picture. If it's a remake, look at West side story. It like had yeah. some momentum and then boo, like just plummeted. And a, a lot of that was people like, yeah, I've seen this. I know this we're good. And kind of went from there. So it's astounding to me that of all of the pictures, not the one with the biggest star, you know, not King Richard or something, not mm -hmm. the one with some legacy person like Kenneth Branagh, you know, who's been around forever, who really wants to win and, and is, you know, highly marketing his film. No, not that. Coda is the one that's yeah. coming through. And again, a lot of that is refreshing. It's it's a it's a heartwarming film. It's you know it's something that you know people can wrap their arms around, and, and it's it's positivity. It's it's got a lot of good things for it. So I will not be mad if it wins, but man, no. is it going to send a lot of conversations in a weird spiral that I look forward to talking about? Like, hey, you know this is an Apple movie, right? Like, uh, and people yeah. will be like, oh no, it went to Sundance. I'm like, yeah. So does a lot of. Netflix movies, they go to Cannes, they go to Venice, they go to Toronto, like they participate. So don't start saying like, oh, well, because it went this particular route because it was acquired by Apple. Why are we being so holy? And that's that's where I want to get to yeah. at some point, but probably after the Oscars, after everybody's had their uh, had their say. Um, but part of the conversation is not just the PGA. It's also the WGA where Coda mm -hmm. did also win adapted screenplay. And I know that, you know, Campion wasn't eligible. A lot of people weren't eligible, quite frankly. Um, so to me, this doesn't, you know, send up as much of a flair. But in reality, though, don't you think that Coda probably has to win adapted screenplay if it's going to win best picture you can't just get best supporting actor and be like yep but here it is best picture uh so i would think especially because it's going head to head with dog there too so mm -hmm. i feel like it has to win am i am i out of bounds on that i one of the things that i'm curious about is because i mean like last year i think was a great example of like the spreading the wealth yeah. kind of thing yeah because you did not see it was not lord of the rings return of the king where it was they're nominated for like whatever 14 bajillion Oscars yeah. and they win every single one of those out sure. of the 23 categories. And part of me wonders if that's due to the fact that they, the Academy is kind of making a concerted effort on diversifying and yeah. having people in the Academy who are actively working, like no yeah. more guy who was working when the red scare was a thing and hasn't made a movie <laughs> since reagan was president like right. they want people who are actively in the industry examining the work of themselves and their peers and voting yeah and so i don't know if i i think that it would certainly show that globally people did 
resonate with that film and certainly make it a little less of a nail biter at the end of the day. Right. I don't know if it's necessary though. Again, because the voting populations are a, they, they overlap so much with these guilds. That's why you have to pay attention to the guild right. nominations and guild wins. And yeah, while some big contenders weren't in it, they're coming fresh off of just voting for it. Yeah. And now having to vote for the Academy Awards. Sure. Um, but then also like Maggie Gyllenhaal's in that mix too. Yeah. I hope to God she does not win. Mm. There is I recently read the screenplay. It is not good. Oh. Um, it it is, you know, so much of a screenplay is about it's not just the dialogue, mm-hmm. as many people think. Like it is about providing direction to literally everyone. It's giving the director the mm-hmm. framework if they're not filming it. It's making sure that the DP kind of understands, okay, if I'm if this person is in this setting, I'm gonna need these types of tools. It's letting the actor know my mind space needs to be here when I'm reading and saying these lines. It's right. There's so much that goes into it and it is a slog to get through. Right. So if you're sitting there really having to work for what's going on, like, you know, that's, that's something that you, it's not entertaining. And I think that that's kind of where the film can kind of be so shaky is because there's sometimes too much information in there and not enough vision to be able to say like, okay, this is what we're doing in this moment, but she's won a lot. She won it venice she She won the scripter yeah she won um at the independent spirit awards which again is a different voting population but you know people pay attention to those things sure yeah um and she's also maggie gyllenhaal it does not hurt what her name is like that gyllenhaal last name got her to win a whole bunch of independent spirit awards i know that for a fact because it certainly wasn't the best film nominated and gotham's too Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So like that can also play into it. So like if Maggie Gyllenhaal comes in as a dark horse and swoops in both uh Jane Campion and uh Sean Heater, yeah, who knows? And that makes it a little bit more interesting because well, Power of the Dog might have more technical awards and they might win those, does that necessarily equate to, because Parasite didn't have technical awards. Right. Sure, it won screenplay and best director, which definitely helped. Right. But there is so much spreading of the wealth here. Yeah. What I don't, I don't know. I could buy that being there, especially now that it kind of seems like Jessica Chastain is going to win best actress. So if you're taking away the other way to reward Lost Daughter with Olivia Coleman. Then they might yeah. go, well, we could kind of knock that one out, too, mm-hmm. um, and go that way. I think a lot of people admire, and obviously you're not one of them, but a lot of people admire the whole, this is unadaptable kind of a book. And the fact that um, she was able to, and we talked about it on our review, you were on yeah. for that, that um, this is a per- an author that is like, never lets anyone adapt their stuff and would only let a female and the right female adapted to. So there's a lot of that going on too, where it's not just the screenplay. There's always added layers of like the story uh, is well sold. So I'd be interested to see if that happens too. But man, if you knock out 
adapted screenplay and picture for Power of the Dog, and you're taking Cody Smith McPhee out now. You're uh-huh. kind of like checking down the line. You're like, where are they actually? Like, it's are they just gonna get director? Are they only gonna get director and say cinematography or score? Which like yeah, and it's like okay, but man. It's tough because uh, that would be literally spreading the wealth. Because if you see like Dune, who has a lot of nominations, but they're probably going to win a lot of them on the on the mm-hmm. you know the undercard, so to speak, uh, you know, b- b- below the line, uh, they'll probably win four or five, and they might mm-hmm. be the leading winner of the night while also not getting best picture. It's definitely something that could happen. Uh, it's wild in that regard, and yet. They probably won't win Best Adapted Screenplay, even though that's also yeah. very hard to adapt, uh, as we've seen David Lynch and others try. So uh, that is interesting. It's uh, so many wild uh, scenarios right now. One other one for you, and this really doesn't fully have to do with Netflix, I think, at the end of the day. But uh, you already brought them up. Don't look up one original screenplay at the WGAs. Yeah. It did. So congratulations to them. Uh, but I know that some people, again, were not eligible. But one of the people who was eligible was Paul Thomas Anderson. And, you know, if if anything, this serves as a negative to Paul Thomas Anderson and probably is mm-hmm. a win for Belfast uh, if you want to take it in any kind of context at the end of the day because a lot of people saw it as – those two movies neck and neck. So kind of mm-hmm. don't look up kind of maybe took a right hook to a PTA there. What do you think that's I, logical? Yeah. I, one of the things about, I mean, I, I have a lot of very conflicting thoughts about both Paul Thomas Anderson as a filmmaker, technically an incredible filmmaker. I think he struggles with understanding his privilege a lot. Mm. And that comes across in the stories that he tells and, Licorice Pizza, I think, is his crowning achievement in not being able to read the room. Um, <laughs> sure. I find it really funny, though. You know that he writes all of his screenplays in Word and then makes an assistant. I did hear something like draft. that. Yeah, I didn't know he whether then, it was Word, but I knew it was some antiquated software. Yeah. Yeah. It, no, it's a Word document. He sent Alana Hayam a Word document uh-huh. <laughs> and was like, here is a screenplay that I wrote for you. Uh-huh. So I... I hope that it kind of makes him reevaluate a few things. I don't have hope for that. Happening. Oh, I, I, not at this point. I, yeah. <laughs> um, but maybe we can continue to tell him about this lovely thing called accountability that you don't make anti-Asian racist jokes in films and get to, you know, uh, just go away scot-free. Yeah. Um, I also don't, I, I just have an inkling that the worst person in the world could also be a threat to Belfast because Belfast also isn't a good movie. Somehow (laughs) Kenneth Branagh made the troubles really boring. And I feel like that is, I mean, it is a feat. I will give him that. So if he gets awarded, great job on that. Um, But I think just like structurally, the worst person in the world is such a great film. Mm. And you can tell it started with that screenplay because of, the almost vignette style of those chapters and how they both have to kind of stand alone in the moment and be the thread 
for our film. So I just have my fingers crossed for that one. <laughs> You're just punching a bunch of people down <laughs> along the way. I admired it in a lot of different ways, though. I will say the irony of the package of statements that you had is the person who's doing a lot of the legwork with championing worst person in the world is PTA. So I know. Um, that's why I say I'm conflict. I'm yeah. conflicted about Paul Thomas Anderson because I think that he understands and loves film. Yeah. But I think as a person, he struggles to take in constructive criticism to right. make himself as a better filmmaker in context. So right. I, I think that he has great eye for film. I think he as a person needs to work on himself. <laughs> hey, uh, hopefully there is room for growth. And maybe it also starts with, I think I have a copy of Final Draft around here. Maybe we can also make yeah, that happen, too. We can, let's know. see if we can do that for dear old Paul. Yeah, I'm sure he's, he's struggling to find copies around uh, Hollywood there. Um, the only other thing that happened over the weekend is the ASC, like I said, the Cinematographers Guild Awards, where that went to Dune. Uh, that doesn't have a high crossover, it has like a 55% crossover. So it's not something where it's like, wow, you know, that's going to be a slam dunk now. Um, Cause honestly, I think with all these other things getting lost for power, of the dog, I think a great story would be for Ari Wagner to, to win yeah. cinematography. If you're going to be, it would be a nice, at least if you're not going to give it best picture, a nice package of two amazing women who made, uh, at least if you want to say a beautifully crafted film uh, mm -hmm. where a lot of people, you know, you may think it's too boring or a slow burn or uh, some of these things that maybe aren't appealing to you. But show me a person who thinks that that movie isn't a beautiful look um, and really a convincing old West, uh, you know, or older West. I shouldn't say it depends. It's not the gold rush here, people. But like, obviously, for it to feel like it's what, 1920s Montana or whatever it's supposed yeah. to be. I mean is amazing and you know when i saw that uh at new york film festival in the biggest screen i've ever seen and the best sound and everything else that's the eye-popping part of these things is the cinematography and johnny greenwood's score i think were my favorite parts of that film and and cody smith mcphee unfortunately and he's obviously heading in the wrong direction unfortunately but i think those two things might end up winning at the end of the day the cinematography and score because they're like, yeah. sorry, we didn't give you best picture. <laughs> well, and I also think that they are, if you are Sam Elliott and offended by gay people, yeah. Um, if you're looking at the technical pieces of it, the cinematography is gorgeous. Right. It would also, she would be the first woman ever to win that award. Yeah. And I mean, about two to 3% of major budget films are shot by female cinematographers yeah so there aren't a lot of women represented in the guild there aren't a lot of women represented when it comes to any type of nomination she's the second one after rachel morrison who should have won right sorry roger deakins but she should have won i think that the only possible uh contender or um someone who could steal that award is bruno del bonnell just because he is a repeat um, nominee. Sure. He has that European backing and appeal to him, which we know European voters kind of like that. Yeah. Wouldn't be mad, but I think that she did really excellent work this year because um, she had both 
Power of the Dog and Zola. Yeah. And they both have such different aesthetics and feel. And I think that that is truly remarkable as a cinematographer to be able to adapt your aesthetic and understanding of the work with a different director. Cause I yeah. mean, I love Bruno Del Bonnell, but he, you watch like a Coen brothers film. And if you watch enough of them, you know, he's shooting them yeah. just based off of what, you know, the framing and everything. Sure. Um, and then Johnny Greenwood's um, score is impeccable. Um, yeah. It really is almost like a sweeping Western and then also kind of has to change into a bit of like psychological torment because that's what Benedict Cumberbatch yeah. does throughout most of the film is just psychologically torment people because he's so upset about um, femininity. Yeah. So it's it's a very interesting balance and my fingers are crossed that they do win in both of those categories. Yeah, weirdly enough, I I, I think... Honestly, if you if he did more work with kind of the setting of the tension that he did in Power of the Dog and actually applied it more to Spencer, I might have actually liked yeah. Spencer more. Um, but I thought it was too subtle there and perfectly subtle in, mm-hmm. in Power of the Dog. It's weird, obviously, in terms of the, the craft of those two movies. But, you know, those things make a difference. And I know that Netflix also did a big event where they had greenwood do the the score live with the film mm-hmm. that a lot of people went to so things like that stick with people especially this late in the game so it'd be interesting to see if that's kind of the consolation prize i hate to say it in that way because i think it's well deserved but you know to get it over zimmer and dune i think especially because dune will win a lot in yeah visual effects and other things of that nature that i think if they really want to you know, still support Power of the Dog. I think that's a great way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I really think that maybe Hans Zimmer would be the only real competition in that one. Yeah, even though maybe you and I don't absolutely love the movie, like Don't Look Up had a, a very good one for uh, Nicholas Bertel. And um, oh, yeah. so that one got some noise. Parallel Mothers was a surprise entry, but a lot of people that uh, love that one too. Um, and I'm trying to remember who the fifth one was. Um, oh, it was Encanto, wasn't it? Yes, it yeah. was. So that would be interesting too if that one just you know kind of comes off the top rope. But we'll see uh, if that happens. But even animated feature, I I'm I'm definitely in the bag for Mitchell's versus the machines, and I know there was uh, some love uh, over last weekend for it that made me encouraged mm-hmm. with the Annies and Critics Choice uh, wins for them. But woof. This, I, I'm 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 excited actually because I'm hoping for some upsets that make people go wow or maybe some things where we should have known this all along. So yeah. I think Oscar Sunday will at least be entertaining, especially if you're sitting on Twitter watching people kind of you know do their ridiculous reaction yeah. <laughs> videos or or however these things pan out. But I know you and I will be doing so. But one thing that I am really looking forward to is our discussion on Windfall for the movie that came out. This past Friday, we will get to that. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and talk all about Windfall. Stay tuned. Attention, culture consumers. Join me, the queen of queries, Sarah O'Connor, and my band of nerdy knights. Colleen McMillan. Flo Siegel. And Anders Drew. On Bohemian Geek Studies, where we take extremely dorky dives into our favorite fandoms, especially that Star Wars galaxy far, far away. 
Listen each week as we examine the stories that mean so much to us. Bohemian Geek Studies is available wherever you get your podcasts and is proudly part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. All right, we're back and we're going to talk about the neo-noir Windfall that came out uh, this past Friday on the 19th starring Jason Siegel, Lily Collins, Jesse Plemons, and a tiny, tiny bit of Omar Levia. <laughs> Need to shout out the gardener every now and then, right? Um, this is also a movie from uh, a person who Morgan really stuck her neck out for. Was a big fan of Charlie McDowell uh, that I saw online. I was glad to kind of be like, oh, someone who's as interested and fascinated in Windfall <laughs> and hopeful for Windfall uh, before it came out. So I'm glad we were able to make this work. Charlie McDowell is the uh, creator of The One I Love. And The Discovery, another Netflix movie that I was able to catch over the weekend. I'm sure that will come up a bunch of times. And written, of course, alongside his multiple-time partner, Justin Later, and the uh, writer of Seven uh, and Sleepy Hollow and other such things, Andrew Kevin Walker. So this was a movie that had a lot of people that I absolutely adore. Um, a lot of people who take very big swings and, and make interesting films so i was very hopeful for this film uh the plot reads a man breaks into a tech billionaire's empty vacation home but things go sideways when the arrogant mogul and his wife arrive for a last minute getaway morgan uh first and foremost what did you appreciate about charlie mcdowell's work uh before you saw windfall Uh, like what made you encouraged to want to see more of his stuff this past weekend yeah well so i first kind of became introduced to Charlie McDowell because he on his Twitter in the early to 2010s uh, used to tweet about dear girls above me about his uh, upstairs neighbors. Yeah. I heard about and this. Yeah. I, I love his kind of just like quick wit and humor. And it's not a, I think one of the things that we do, especially when we're, and as you kind of talked about earlier, is when we're looking at um, humor, we do a lot of punching down and that's really, those are cheap shots. Sure. And I think that his humor was always really smart and just kind of like, this is just the absurdity of having to live around other people. Like, I'm not here to say that they're bad or good in any way. Just like, isn't it funny that these weird things happen because we live amongst each other. Right. Um, so that when he then directed the film, the one I love and co-wrote that film, I like fell in love with that film. Uh, it's one of the few movies that I am consistently recommending when someone's like, I need just kind of like a random film. Yeah. <laughs> um, because I think he used a single setting in a very clever way. Yeah. Um, also used a small cast. Um, and so he was doing that before the pandemic. So yeah. when Windfall came out, uh, or at least the announcement saying that this was his latest film, I was super excited because the one I love just kind of captures so much with so little. And yeah. so knowing that those were kind of the same parameters he was going to have to work in for this one, I knew it was going to be interesting. Yeah, even The Discovery, which uh, has been recommended to me a bunch, uh, and I only caught this past weekend, so thank you for for anyone who did pass that along to me. Um, 
I also know that that movie was shot in Connecticut where I live. So I was like, ooh, cool. We can kind of, I can get a little something out of that too. A little extra juice there. But that's a movie that, interesting between that and the one I love, that one also is basically like practically one location most of the time. There's maybe a couple little small scenes in other places or on a boat or something. But most of the time it's in this one kind of large mansion place that uh robert redford's character operates out of and the interesting thing i like about charlie mcdowell is that his scripts are very heady there's a lot of Mm -hmm. like philosophical discussions or you know these really emotional punches for movies that kind of play with time or other kind of things that he he likes to really examine things through especially the ones that he has more of a credit with the writing too. Like the discovery, I believe he was a full on co-writer. I believe the one I love is he was maybe story by, and then Justin, uh, Justin later uh, wrote the Mm -hmm. screenplay for, Uh, and this one is kind of similar where uh, there's many uh, writers attributed. It's uh, Justin later, Andrew, Kevin Walker are the people who are attributed with the screenplay but it's also a story by Charlie McDowell, Jason Siegel, Justin Later, and Kevin, Andrew Kevin Walker. So um, you're right, though. He, he is really good at kind of picking these kind of like one or two location kind of movies. And But I will say that this one feels kind of the most claustrophobic-y and mm-hmm. pandemic-y in a way because it was definitely shot during the pandemic. So you can kind of see in some of the staging and obviously how little – uh cast we're talking about here the one i love interestingly enough for something where it's almost like they can't escape this home has more cast and a little bit more dynamics to it that you can kind of it doesn't feel as closed in um but this one definitely has a lot of hallmarks that charlie mcdowell likes to do um current critical scores for anyone who cares before we get started um 5.7 on imdb a 51 Metascore, a 55 Tomato Meter, 47% Audience Score, and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, a little more forgiving, which is, I, I don't understand the shake on this because I've seen some of the very top critics that I actually like and, and follow go, wow, this movie was really good and like very interesting and all that kind of stuff. And then I see the scores on a, on a mass level and they really take a notch several notches down um so i'll be interested to know i mean obviously based on you and i being friends on letterbox i do have an insight into into your thoughts and obviously you're a little more glowing even right up top so i'm sure people are not going to be uh taken aback by your uh optimistic viewpoint that you will probably bring to us in a moment but now that you have seen the film do you think that it does match up like if somebody is a you know mcdowell fan like, if you're coming into this film, do you think it has a lot of hallmarks in the construction besides, like, say, the small settings or things like that? Do you think a lot of his style comes through on this? Yeah, and I think one of the things about it, and I'm wondering if this is kind of where people are having the hang-up, is mm. the one I love came out in a time where we weren't used to having to be in close quarters yeah. with a single person. And now all of a sudden, we have spent two going on three years having that kind of claustrophobia 
Yeah. And so watching a film that is both a thriller and having to use the constraints of claustrophobia because it was shot during COVID. Right. I think that people are less forgiving about that. And I think one of the things that was so great about this film was like the pacing because it is so difficult to be on a single location and then have to find something to change the pace because then it can just become monotonous and it didn't like I didn't feel it become monotonous I felt it kind of taking small enough shifts to where it's like okay now we're moving forward this way now we're moving forward that way I like the way that and you know this could um also be Justin Later who does this because he wrote the one I love and co-wrote this one Mm. um but you know like in the one I love there are very tiny details that they add about the character Mm -hmm. And you are like, okay, I feel like that's going to be important information, but I don't know how that information is going to be important. Right. And then it kind of unfolds like at the end and you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. Right. And Windfall did the exact same thing with Lily Collins character in particular, providing a little bit of insight into her story. Right. Um, And then the twists that kind of all unfold in the final act. Yeah. Um, but I also just want to say I don't subscribe to media scores because Practical Magic had a 22% on Rotten Tomato <laughs> as a great film. Uh, so yeah, I I I'll take those with a grain of salt every single day. Oh, everybody has like their one or two where it's like, come on, you know. Like to me, I think uh Wayne's World 2 is a masterpiece. So come at me, everybody. It's it's the one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. And yet, you know. People don't even think it's better than the first one, let alone uh, however that goes. You're all wrong, people. That's uh, that's what you came here for. You're here to learn lessons from Morgan and myself. So, yeah, yeah come out and, and, and see see the crowd pleasers. We're just to let everybody know, we're going to spoil the crap out of this movie. So if you have not seen the movie, you know, take whatever we've said to this point with a you know and, and go check it out and then come back and, and, and obviously also check out uh, his other work because I think without spoiling my uh, my thoughts too much I enjoy his other two more than this movie so you know however that shifts in your brain but I do like those other ones quite a bit so does it mean I don't like it well we'll tease that one so um one of the things that I think maybe people are knocking the scores down for is just the impatience of someone who probably is like, oh, look, an hour and a half movie and then a movie that feels like an hour and 45, hour 50 because of how slow the pacing is, at least for for a majority of the movie. There isn't a ton of like pop up, you know, like high tension scenes. It's mostly just a seething, <laughs> you know, this kind of like itchy kind of noir vibe, which Honestly, from the jump, the opening uh, credits and how they uh, did the score and and laid out even just the first few minutes of one frame of of this house, I was on board. I was like, oh, it's going to have that, are we? Because it is kind of reviving that classic noir staple, right? Of like bringing Mm -hmm. together a common criminal and a high class people and trying to find either 
common ground or go through like these class war debates while making it this crime thriller where it's, you know, it's kind of just a, a happenstance that you're bringing these people together, but we're also supposed to draw it out until it's kind of like inevitably probably either violent or or trickery uh, conclusion. That was a classic noir staple from like see the first, you know, 50, 60 years of the 21st century or 20th century, I should say. Um, so tons of titles to look for there. But this film is actually kind of a little bit of, both like between the class war debate and also kind of like the twist on the crime itself. Mm -hmm. Um, so how did you feel about it's kind of like noir throwback style? I like film noirs and I find it interesting that people will sit three hours through a Batman, but won't, <laughs> as you said, mm -hmm. won't sit there and take the time to critically analyze a 90 minute film. Like, I think that's probably why people felt it, maybe despite a 90 some minute runtime that it was a little bit longer because right. you actually have to sit there and digest information being given to you. You don't have explosions and stuff to kind of distract you from the realities of what's going on. Right. And I, that's why I've always really liked film noirs. Like I watched those a lot with my dad, uh, turn classic movies, right. Channel on in our house all the time growing sure. up. So I I really appreciate people that kind of go back to true form noir because people are like, oh, it's a film noir. And it's like, no, you just shot part of this in black and white. Like, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's not a film noir. Right. Like, that's not what that means. Um, or cool, you had yeah. a saxophone. <laughs> yeah, like there's saxophone playing and people smoking. That's yeah. not, it's, that's not a film noir. Yeah. Um, and, but I also don't think that people watch a lot of film noirs anymore. So that's, yeah. a, it's a, it's a, it's kind of like a martini. You either really like it or you don't. Yeah. And there's no way that I can get anyone to like gin. I love gin. <laughs> you can't just make someone like gin all of a sudden. It, it's there or it, or it isn't. It's true. But I will say in the streaming era, I wouldn't be shocked if more of these, you at least get a couple of these a year. Because again, if you're talking small budget, hour and a half, you can get, you know, big time stars to kind of, you know, go play in the sandbox for a couple weeks and and then throw it on a streamer. I, I would be totally fine with that if this becomes, you know, the 1940s again, <laughs> you know, and try to bring yeah. some of this back. I'd be I'd be into it. Um, but let's just dive right in now. All right. Let, yeah. Let's just kind of rip the bandaid. <laughs> I know you gave this, I believe, four out of five stars. So you really yeah. enjoyed this movie. So what would you say overall? What was your your high points for this? What is the what is the elevator pitch to people who should watch this movie? What did you enjoy? I mean, I think Lily Collins really shines. And I, I think that um, especially a lot of her early work was geared towards young women mm -hmm. and she kind of has always been dismissed, but she does give really great performances and things like stuck in love or um, love Rosie. And I think that this, I mean, it doesn't hurt that she's married to the director. Yeah. A lot of people uh, like to mention that. And I also just want to be like, who gives a shit? It just means well, that probably during the pandemic, like that was yeah. maybe an easier decision, but also who cares? I think that it, Normally, when we talk about 
people, an actor working with their spouse director. Right. We think of all of the bad instances. Yeah. And I like that Charlie McDowell and Lily Collins are joining the ranks of John Krasinski and Emily Blunt, yeah. where it's like, oh, he knows that she's talented. Right. So he's giving her material that actually showcases that. I love that for them. So I was really excited. Also, to see Netflix is part of the whole reason for the Lily Collins renaissance. So yeah. even if it wasn't Charlie McDowell, you would easily, well, it's a Netflix movie, so it's going to mm-hmm. be Lily Collins because, you know, Mank, Okja, you know, the fact that she's an Emily in Paris, you know, extremely oh wicked, shockingly evil and vile, the, you know, Ted Bundy movie that she was into. She's in a lot of these guys. So like, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of reasons for her to be here. And obviously she makes the most of it in your, in your purview. Yeah. And, um, I like, um, I love, I mean, it's Jason Siegel, Jesse Plemons are like the two main people that she's acting with. Yeah. And I don't think you can go wrong with either of them. Um, but one of the things is I really like her storyline because while the two men are sitting there having these philosophical arguments about how their lives are so bad in all these other ways. Mm. She's literally there articulating the ways that she as a person understands that yes, she's privileged and yes, she's there, but also added privileges has also taken away freedoms from her. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a very interesting story. And I appreciate the fact that men literally ignored that the whole time because men tend to ignore that. And um, I just thought that that was kind of a really added interesting element to it because, you know, Jesse Plemons is going like, why should I be ashamed that I'm rich? Jason Siegel's like, down with the powerful but i also want all of your money and then lily collins is going there saying like there is actually nuance to all of this because there is so much privilege like jason siegel isn't being you know they're not calling the cops they're literally complying with him from moment one yeah and that's a privilege that the fact that they're no one's putting up a fight they're just like we'll just give you whatever you want just leave yeah. Um. So I I just found that to be a really interesting storyline, and while it's not the main crux of the story, I think it adds so much flavor to what could have been just a very simple: Are rich people bad? Are people who are stealing bad? Are we going to just sit here and look at a black and white understanding of morality? Right. Yeah. It's it's actually just more a movie about you know seizing opportunities in like the Mm -hmm. most basic sense i mean you have the opportunity to live above your station for a fleeting moment with jason siegel and the opportunity to call out your aggressors you know in this kind of very selfish way with jesse plemons and also kind of you know echoing a lot of his successes and and using that as like i never you know took anything that wasn't already mine kind of like putting his stamp on things and then like you mentioned with with Lily Collins, it's the opportunity to kind of correct the mistakes of your past and and start anew. So the only thing I, I agree with you, I I like that perspective from the Lily Collins character. I think the only thing, because my biggest problem with this movie is basically the end, um, and, and that last, you know, basically everything after 
I shouldn't say everything that sounds too too dramatic, but like basically a lot of the stuff that happened after the gardener dies mm-hmm. is is I I wanted them to kind of seize on the chaos and kind of live in that kind of moment. I really liked where the momentum was going in that film and they instantly sucked it right out. Like they just kind of a multiple conversations, multiple scenes that happen after that gardener's death. And this kind of like just big shock scene is they could have been done in a more frantic, messy way, but they really tightened and bottled them up and just sat them back down in these kind of staged, you know, speeches and conversations. And I felt like that pulled me back from the movie. Mm. The other part of that is Lily Collins character. When she kind of has her big moment at the end, taking control mm-hmm. of her life and, and moving forward. Yeah. I guess I'm kind I'm not, not happy for her, but because again, Plemons is, you know, gross and, and, mm-hmm. and selfish and, and not a good partner, but at the and Jason Siegel obviously is a criminal that is hold them hostage. So you won't feel too bad for him either, but nothing there where I felt there's a, there's a whole scene in earlier in the movie where they literally lay out like, you know, you're not a victim, right? Because you made these choices. You made them consciously to enter into his relationship with Jesse Plemons and what you knew kind of, you already saw what your life was going to be like. You knew it was going to be more than just I'm marrying the man. I'm marrying all of this that goes along with it. So she didn't go in with blinders. It may have not turned out to where she wanted it to be, but does that equal murder and, and essentially theft at the end of the day? I don't, I don't go that far. Like I didn't feel over the moon. Like I didn't feel enough for her to be like satisfied with the ending. Mm-hmm. It just kind of felt like this is just where it needed to go because all of these people kind of suck. <laughs> well, so part of me wonders, and that's, I think kind of a slippery slope because of, especially we see people who were already in positions of power and they promise the world to a potential partner and then it turns into something probably not great you know just thinking about the fact that the added power dynamic you don't understand the distance in the power dynamic until you're fully in that relationship um and the fact that she needed to be on birth control and was secretly doing it i mean you're not in a healthy relationship if you are actively using birth control your husband is planning that you guys are going to have a family together Mm. and the reason that i think that break meant so much sense is because jason siegel told her secret and she was regaining control and was kind of sitting there going like i'm going to do something and i don't and i think that she had the idea but I do not think she, because at one point she tells Jason Siegel's character, you're not a killer, right? She right. says that to him. And I think that the minute that that secret came out and that possible additional security that maybe she had, and now that's whatever security she had is gone because of that secret coming out. You know, I, I probably also snap a little bit too. 
Yeah, I just maybe- wonder if like divorce doesn't also solve a lot of the same issues. Like basically, it, even if I- she attacks Siegel and kind of essentially saves them, she could still walk away and still not kill him. He's tied up. You're literally like kind of just I don't want to say it's overkill, but basically either you could could have left him for dead and not shot him too, but like I don't know. I I understand he's a person with means so and reach, I'm sure. Uh and obviously they mentioned something about uh the prenup too and whatever else. But at the end of the day, I I find his I find his character to be more impulsive than dangerous or or he didn't come off that way well, to where like if 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 she knocks out Siegel he unties her or she unties him to, I don't see him like going after her or like or that the the odds couldn't have changed like they couldn't have just been like I'm not going through this again or, or the Debbie thing there's a bunch of things where she could just be like oh no 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 like there's enough here where I'm just gonna leave you and he's so selfish. Why he wouldn't have clung to anything? So I don't know. I don't know. I, I just didn't feel I, it as much. I'm not saying it killed the movie for me because I still mm-hmm. liked it. There's a lot of like even things that I didn't. I watched it twice, and I feel like it got better the second time because mm-hmm. a lot of times with these noirs, you don't know what's gonna twist at the end. And mm-hmm. so you kind of just have to almost sit with it or watch it again through the eyes of where everything's going and then appreciate things more, especially little things like, oh, the uh, the nine call 911 thing with the note mm-hmm. with the gardener. Like, I don't even know if I caught that the first time where she was like, oh, you put us all in danger kind of a thing. It's like, oh, I, I may have even missed that. So like certain things were like, oh, I caught other smaller things uh, on rewatch. Um, I could just also be a bad watcher. That's possible too. But like, that's why I watched it twice to be honest. Cause I, I did see a lot of positive, including yourself, uh, reviews from people who I respect their opinion. So I kind of wanted to give it a more of a sh- fair shake, especially because between watch one and watch two, I watched the discovery and that movie, even though it's kind of a mess, like there's so much good in that that I was just kind of blown away by it. It's one of those, like somebody can tell me all its flaws to my face and I'd be like, cool. I still think it's an amazing big swing with a lot of philosophical discussions that make me just engaged with a movie so much that a lot of people can't do. Even people who may quote unquote, make a a safer or an easier movie that made Mm -hmm. a better movie in a lot of people's eyes. I will take the people who try to give me something I haven't seen before more than any other person. Just give me something to chew on, something to sit with, and that is amazing at the end of the day. And a lot of heart. That movie has a ton of heart, which I guess maybe soured me a little bit on this movie too because I think there is more head and heart in his first two movies than this movie, but that shouldn't make me not appreciate this movie so i'm glad i did the second watch where i did like some things more i think the score is excellent um you know especially for such a a small movie it kind of needs it it does a lot of heavy lifting at times to keep Mm -hmm. people uh locked in i thought the performances were definitely uh well done uh and i enjoyed the pace and the style of the first two thirds 
that classic noir style. But I think once the Band-Aid is truly ripped off with that Gardner's death, I was hoping for something more of like, not a freight train ending, but something a little less less clean, I guess, mm-hmm. about the, the way it shook out, especially with a an ending that ultimately does end in violence yet again. So it's, yeah. it's kind of this weird back and forth because they just decided they needed to buy time for Lily Collins to escape. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I can understand kind of the bit between the gardener's death and then them getting the money kind of being the weak link in the pacing. Yeah. But I, I just, I still feel that the, the very last twist at the end kind of is a little bit because the entire time you feel very uneasy about Jesse Plemons character. Yeah. He's the at least time I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but on top of that, like the way that he talked to his assistant and I know I've heard people talk to their assistants even worse than that before, <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. but the way that it was almost like a, it needs to be here with a silent or else was kind of the, I wonder if that's how he operates in all aspects of his life. I would assume that he does. So I think that that the fact that he's a ticking time bomb in this situation means that who knows in other settings, what type of volatility he has. Yeah. Um, So I think that that was kind of the, I don't know if fun is the right word, but the fun payoff of the fact that it's like, I don't think that she would have killed him if there wasn't something else. And I felt something else underneath the surface. Right. So I'm just going to kind of intrinsically trust a female character when they're like, yep, he has to die right. to be like, yeah, okay. I, I felt something weird underneath the surface. So I'm going I'm to trust you on that one. Good. Uh, good on you. Congratulations. Enjoy your half a million dollars. Right. Uh, maybe go get another fun tattoo on your foot. Sure. Love, you know, live your life. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, and especially, obviously, the that lying thing of like we don't know what quote the Debbie situation was with an NDA, and there's these are people who can obviously throw money at a situation and quiet people and whatever and 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 harm their lives in a bunch of different ways for sure. Uh, just something about murder may it just seem so easy and like obviously it's very final so it's it's something where i i don't know maybe i expected something more clever but i think at the end of the day i just feel like it was a little less unearned you know you know Mm -hmm. than maybe what they presented to me because when you see them come into the vacation house they're having fun like yeah they seem like a typical married couple having communication issues and some other things of course and then you get to see more of it as it unravels um, from what's maybe more really going on, but I don't know for it to end in murder that, that just seemed like not a huge leap, but more of a leap than I was maybe expecting. So even on multiple watches, I was like, all right, uh, I'm here, but I'm not fully on board, which is why like for you giving a four, maybe I'm giving like a three, three and a half somewhere around yeah. there. So it's not like I'm a huge, massive drop-off because there are a lot of things I do like. Um, even the speech at the end with Siegel to Jesse Plemons, mm-hmm. even though it's some of those things that you're like, yeah, it's not exactly this kind of like class war debate all the time or whatever, but 
honestly, I thought that was still a very impassioned and kind of like what mm-hmm. I like out of Charlie McDowell's uh, and Justin Leader's writing, um, where it's, you know, he didn't make it about, you know, in, in us versus them. He was like, no, no, no. I was hoping I had optimism that you weren't a piece of shit. And then kind of like was like, but I now have walked in your life and I'm disgusted kind of a mm-hmm. thing was actually welcomed because it made it more like a uh, a personal journey mm-hmm. through what we all kind of do where we kind of look at these tech billionaires or these rich uh you know people on tv or something and we go you know god i'd wish i could live like that for a day and then he does and still just comes mm-hmm. away with just you know wanting to take a shower more than you know wanting to be him so i i i enjoyed that more especially the second time some of the speeches when i'm not fully maybe bought in on some of the outcomes the speeches rung a little hollow on first watch but it does improve mm-hmm. i think the uh, the more you sit with it or the maybe on rewatch so i encourage people not only to watch this but maybe give it a second chance if you maybe felt slightly lukewarm uh or obviously if you really like it you can watch it as many times as you like but many times yeah but again the thing I really like about Charlie McDowell is he takes a lot of big swings and does a lot of things that maybe people aren't doing right now. And I think this definitely is a welcomed entry into that as well. And mm-hmm. I definitely do not agree with how low these scores are, though, because, like, you know, even even the three on letterbox to be like the high water mark is like, what? Yeah. Um, but I can understand a lot of people have such a hard time with slow pace and I don't understand it. I haven't understood it most of my life. I'm a person who loves uh, M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable. That movie mm-hmm. is slow as hell, but it's one of my favorite movies because if you hang tight, it makes sense for why it's so slow and it pays off because it's so slow and it's methodical and you really get to see him and his prime, because it was a very short prime. Sorry, M. Knight. But, uh, you know, <laughs> between that and Sixth Sense, I thought he was way more calculated and Hitchcockian and before he kind of lost his mind with what he wanted to do <laughs> with his stories. Um, and honestly, there, a lot of people are calling this one Hitchcockian, too, which I, I buy. It kind of goes in some of those, you know, 1940s noirs that Hitchcock did. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Again, I, I will take a person who takes a chance on something a little more wild, you know, uh, wanting to be a little more heady and and be, you know, almost, almost being slow now is being daring. And I'll, yeah. I'll say good for you on that, Charlie McDowell. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we kind of have lost the touch. It's not just slow pacing because there are plenty of films that people are like, oh, it, I liked it or um you know, I enjoyed it. Like, I think Nightmare Alley was, had some pretty horrendous pacing issues. Amazing performances. Yeah. Could have been a little bit shorter or turn it into a mini series if you want all of that information. <laughs> um, but, you know, I grew up watching things like 12 Angry Men yeah. and The Haunting, which are slow paced. They're not two hours long. Yeah. But the ideas that you are paying attention to every bit of it and i think that we sometimes have lost our ability to just sit and immerse yeah um especially if you're at home or like i was at a movie theater recently 
uh, people were checking their phones there too. So I think that when things aren't necessarily explicit, people, people have issues with that and go, go watch some old black and white movies. And yeah, there's a ton of good stuff on HBO max right now. Like all those Turner classic movie stuff. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy, uh, that aspect of HBO max a lot. So, you know, there's a ton of good stuff. Go check them out. You know, it's it's an amazing time, you know, between all the streaming options, criterion, anything. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a beautiful time to be a cinephile and to kind of contrast and compare between either mm-hmm. old Char- older Charlie McDowell stuff, which you can find a lot of that on streaming, or his influences, which you can find a ton uh right now everywhere you look. So very cool that this movie exists. Uh, it, it wasn't maybe uh, with the trailer for this, like, honestly, most of the action is in the two minute trailer, but I think that yeah. underserves how I feel about the movie though. So it is that kind of like, it's, it's like jazz. It's the stuff, it's the notes not played and it's kind of like, you know, yeah. how, how they play with silence and staging and things that make it actually way more appealing. So Thank you for for examining this with me. I mean, I've been racking my brain, really ingesting a lot of Charlie McDowell over the weekend. Um, So I'm I'm glad to kind of talk this one through. You know, I know I made you go through the highs and lows, your your Oscar award season, just trying to shake all that stuff off and waiting to finally end this whole charade while also talking about a film that you were very bullish on. So I'm glad I yeah. I, I got both sides of you. It's good. Yeah, you re- you really did. We got to we got to start kind of on the thing that is making me hate the internet more than usual. And then we got <laughs> to talk about uh, you know, fun creative movies because gosh, I'm really tired of seeing franchise and blow up movies um i really missed the pandemic where we were making tiny big swing movies so i'm glad that we can talk about a a good addition to it for sure um so next week uh what are your plans for the oscars you doing do you do like the oscar party thing or is it like you know my oscar party well so the exciting thing is that i won a neon contest for going on a horrible date and so i've been wearing i now live in this uh worst person in the world sweatshirt nice um so i'll probably be rocking that um (laughs) excellent well the stars are you know wearing louis vuitton and Oscar de la Renta, I will be wearing this yeah. sweatshirt. I will <laughs> probably partake in uh, some adult beverages mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, curl up on my couch and watch it. That's typically what I do. What do you do for Oscar night? Yeah, it's mostly just uh, having the laptop on my on my lap with the uh, film Twitter there and then watching along kind of, you know, the mayhem on, on both sides, just kind of really following it through. Seeing, uh, you know, Matt Neglia lose his mind at next, next Best Picture. I always enjoy that. Shout out to Matt. I love what you guys do over there. It's just very fun. Um, so uh, all of that will be very much uh, welcomed. And then uh, the following day, I'll probably end up talking to uh, David Wong from uh, Is It Worth It? Uh, the film podcast over in the UK, uh, talking all things Oscars and breaking it down and Seeing whether uh, we should all check on Ted Sarandos, uh, I guess, the yeah. next day. Uh, see if he hasn't jumped out of the, his office window. Um, so that'll all be fun. 
to to do. Um, I I I wish I had you know like some kind of. I used to go to Oscar parties when I was younger. Like that was a thing, and I, you know I, I, I don't think that. I've been to one in a two uh fifteen years. So it sucks. It used to be such a big event, and now uh less so. But weirdly, I care more. So it's an odd position I'm in at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I have never been to an Oscar watch party because I have never had a group of friends in my location Right. that uh, sit there and want to talk about movies yeah. for hours. I made someone watch the Golden Globes once and they were like, we we just have to have some things that are separate. And I was like, got it. <laughs> I'll enjoy yeah. my mess and you can enjoy the Fast and the Furious movies. Exactly. We all have our own tastes. Yeah. Um, well, when yeah. I worked at the movie theater, that was the best because then I had a bunch of film heads all around me all the time. So it was easy to have these kind of parties and I miss them. Yeah. I guess One I'm going to have to do it on my own house, which will not be welcomed by my wife, but we'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, maybe I'll have a secret entrance for all my film nerds to come in and hide it out in my basement like I am right now talking to you. So it's a, a beautiful thing. You know, it's always the good guys doing the after hours work. So uh, yeah. much appreciated again for, for doing this with me. And I hope you have a very easy going uh oscars and and not losing your head just don't just don't let them all get to you i know that they you know they don't you know but i'm, I'm hoping for the best for you morgan i know thank you <laughs> i think i'm just ready for people to like not talk about the same things over and over again right. because there's a lot of things happening in the world that are a little bit bigger than power of the dog and yeah. coda that i'm like you know what maybe we should just enjoy things yeah, it's true. We get that small blip between now and what? Probably tell you, May. Tell you right. Yeah, yeah. May or June is like mm -hmm. sort of either can or I think cans first, right? Yeah, but can I think is just kind of more for like mm, international films, and then more often than not, it's just like you know bigger budget movies that maybe they'll go to the Oscars, maybe they won't, kind right. of thing. Where Telluride, Toronto, those are the big, yeah. that's the start of the big push of like Oscars. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they'll space them out any better this year, but I know I think Telluride and Venice was like in the same weekend uh, this yeah. past year. And it was like mayhem where people were like, <laughs> especially not just for me, but like for someone like Kristen Stewart, who's like, you know, flying, you know. 7,000 miles or whatever it is in between uh, to try to make all these events. So that's that's always interesting. But yeah, good on them for, for the hustle. And sometimes it pays off, but I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But it, this was a good time. And we'll we'll obviously keep this conversation going. And, and we'll have to reach out privately probably about the, the Oscars down. But I'm sure we'll be on film Twitter oh, losing yeah. our minds together. So And enjoying those beverages the same way on this end yes, too. So, so much. So thanks again. Uh, this was a lot of fun. And anything for Untitled Cinema Gals or anything you want to plug before we're out? Well, we, um, we're doing some mini episodes. We have um, one of uh, Chelsea's favorite films that was snubbed at the Oscars. Godzilla versus Kong. Uh, <laughs> okay. We also talk the novice and yeah, we just have some fun, chaotic things coming up because those are the people that we are. Godzilla versus Kong, a movie that I heard the script just got greenlit that uh, the sequel to that 
uh, is coming out, I guess, probably in the next year or two. So she'll be very happy to hear that, I hope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we love Kong and we love Godzilla and we um, love people who are hot getting money for blockbuster films. <laughs> there you so. go. Yeah. Hey, listen, I was a person who grew up on Godzilla marathons and stuff like that when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. All for it. Let's do it. But thanks again, Morgan. And we'll talk real soon. Sounds great. <laughs>